Good morning, Regeneration. Uh, nice of you to join us uh, the first Sunday after Easter. I want to start with uh, a story of Martin Luther when he was dealing with uh, the Black Death, uh, the deadly plague in 1527. He wrote these wise words that I hope can help inform the way that we approach what's happening in our world today. He writes, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us, then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. That was a letter that he wrote to his friend uh, John Hess and uh, can be found in Luther's works. We're going to be returning to our study in 1 John, and some may be wondering why 1 John at a time like this, and it is something that I've thought through a lot and prayed about a lot, because there are so many topics that I can address, and I have considered them in the past several weeks. But in reading and studying 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the month prior to Lent, John did help us think deeply about who we are. And some of you have shared with me what you were getting from reading these scriptures together and how it was benefiting you greatly. So we'll continue with 1 John, trusting that God will speak to us through these Bible passages that are actually very relevant and very timely. They help us to spot out what is true and what is false. John is really concerned about false teachers and false teachings that lead people away from God. So as we read from these biblical passages together in the upcoming weeks, um, on our website there are these cards that you can either print out or just follow along there. But through mid-May to read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John together, and hopefully growing in joyfulness, holiness, faithfulness, while confronting the great challenges we're facing today. In light of this pandemic that has us sheltering in place, this will test whether our obedience to God is true, whether our love is genuine, and whether our belief is real. This time of sheltering in place has been spiritually rich for me personally to live in this period of our history when this time of Lent and Easter also fell on this time frame was really, really profound and it had me confront some things about myself, who I really am. It gave me some space to question, reflect on what obedience to God, the love of God, belief in God are to me. And it has been a really tearful and emotional time for me. Putting our faith to the test at a time like this can yield results that would have been really different a month ago. 
And one result may show to be a superficial counterfeit result, and then another one can show to be genuine. I think in times of hardship, the results tend to be more genuine. And as people we care about die and are hospitalized or get sick or lose their means to pay for housing and food or just going through a difficult time, it really tests our faith and it helps us discover whether we really do belong to God. Times like this can have some question their Christian profession of faith. And for some, it may draw us closer to God, but for others, it may cause us to be even more calloused. So this morning, where are you with Jesus Christ, with all that is going on around us? And that question is not coming from a posture of judgment or condemnation. It's actually a question that's coming from a place of endearment and care, like how John addresses his readers in verses 12 through 14. He addresses them as children and fathers. And John is telling us our place as loved ones of God. And then in verses 15 through 17, John gives us this game plan on how we are to live our lives. So let's look at verses 12 through 14 first. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You'll notice the groupings John has in these verses, uh, these three groupings, children, young men, and fathers. And when John writes to these groups, he's not addressing age groups. John is writing to different stages of spiritual maturity. Children in the faith, middle of the road in their faith, and mature in their faith. And since he is writing about spiritual maturity and not about physical age, neither is he writing about physical gender. And so it's addressing stages of spiritual maturity and addressing males here is generic. So where, where you find yourself in this spiritual maturity, these stages is kind of what John is getting to here. So, so where are you in your spiritual maturity this morning? Now the children are addressed in verses 12 and 13. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then in 13, the, the end of that, I write to you children because you know the Father. In our stage of children, of that spiritual maturity, the first realization that we have when after being spiritually awakened is that we are God's children and that we are forgiven. We might not know every answer that, that people have uh, questions for us, that they throw at us, but we do know that we're forgiven in Jesus' name, that we might not know how to pray, we might not know what to do or even how to live, but we do know that our sins are forgiven, not because of our confession at the time, but on account of Jesus' name. The, the name of Jesus represents his saving work and his person. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it reads, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Then you look at Acts. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it reads, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin is found in Jesus' name. Not simply saying the name of Jesus, but submitting ourselves in faith and repentance into all that Jesus Christ has to offer in his name that represent his work and his person. So this new believer, this newfound believer, the one who is younger in their spiritual maturity knows at the very least that they are forgiven of their sins on the account of the name of our Savior, Jesus. Now you look at the present tenses of verses 12 and 13. It says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then in 13 it reads, because you know the Father. It's, it's a very personal, right? Your sins, you. And it's in the present tense. This is what Christians deem justification by faith, this Christian-y term. And this is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Our sins have been washed away. All that can be used against us in judgment has been taken by Jesus. That's what we celebrated last week in Easter. Everything we did, all those sins are placed on Jesus Christ and everything Jesus Christ did in His life, death, and resurrection have been credited to us. Every sin we've done, we are doing and we will do. Jesus Christ has dealt with all of them on the cross. Now it doesn't mean that we should continue in our sin. That's what Romans 6 addresses. Let's just read two verses from there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We're not to continue in sin. We need to repent. Christ dealt with all of our sins, past, present, and future, and, and we have been set free from this sin. And so this is the basic Christian doctrine of justification by faith, that we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We don't allow sin to reign in our mortal body to make you obey those passions any longer. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You are members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's all there in Romans 6. The new believers might not know the answers to every spiritual question that is thrown at them, but they know that all of their sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. 
And the things you forgot to mention to God in regards to sin, you don't have to sweat those things. God knows everything you did, and you don't have to name every single sin because you are justified by faith. Now, of course, if you're convicted of a particular sin, you, you need to confess, you need to repent of it, but you don't have to stress yourself out to identify every single sin in your life. Jesus has those forgotten ones covered as well. And it's important to distinguish justification by faith from sanctification. The walk of sanctification is where we show that we've understood that forgiveness by how we live our life. So from verse 12, those who are younger in their spiritual maturity know that they are forgiven. And then from verse 13, they know that they have a relationship with God. You know the Father. Now from the beginning of our relationship with God, we know we're forgiven. And we know that we have a heavenly Father. And not all of us are blessed to know our earthly fathers, but in relationship with Jesus Christ, we can know our Heavenly Father. And you may have grown up in a dysfunctional earthly family where it wasn't healthy or nurturing, safe. But now you have a Heavenly Father who is a good Father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. John then shifts his attention to fathers, so the, the, the most spiritually mature ones in verses 13 and 14. So the first parts of 13 and 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So this is addressing people who have walked with God for a long time. And the longer we invest our time with God, it's reasonable to believe we spiritually mature with God. From this infant faith of knowing just forgiveness and just knowing who our Father is to just something more. Progressing to something more. But it is possible that one is still spiritually immature, even though they've been a Christian for a long time, just as it is possible for adults to be immature people, and I'm sure we all know that. See, years of being a Christian doesn't automatically make someone spiritually mature. There are still questions that haven't been explored. There are still ways of life that are being practiced that a spiritually mature person would not practice. There are still these beliefs and thoughts that are, are guiding people that aren't the same beliefs and thoughts of a mature follower of Christ. And so there has to be this progression in how God's truth shapes a person's spiritual maturity. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 through 14 and then just the first verse of chapter 6. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. I love babies. Babies are adorable. But only when they're babies. Right? If an adult comes in with a pacifier in their mouth and, and a baby bottle in one hand and their blankie in the other, wearing nothing but a diaper crawling on their hands and knees, that's weird. That's just weird. See, it's cute when a baby acts like a baby. It's not cute when they're older. When a teenager acts like a baby, that's, it's gross. And so it's the same thing with our faith. You look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 again. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And there's this phrase there, trained by constant practice. You can't really get good at something just doing it occasionally. Trained by constant practice. I mentioned my nine-year-old learning how to skateboard a few weeks ago. She's actually pretty good right now. You know, after those several weeks of just being out there every day, several times a day, and I, I did buy her some knee pads so she doesn't get that same injury. But she's not that unsteady person that falls off the board anymore. She's, she's not just falling off as she's riding down the garage driveway and she can take those bumps now she doesn't have to like jump off or get freaked out she can actually like do some tricks and she can do some uh jumping off of some things and she can turn without any problems and she's doing all these ollies at the same time and every day she's getting better at it she's training with constant practice she's maturing as a skater, I, I don't know if skaters ever mature, but she's maturing as a skater. And she can sit and watch YouTube videos all day on how to skate, which is how she kind of started, is just watching. But then that wasn't the most helpful thing to her. What was most helpful was that she actually started doing it. And nothing substitutes that development as a skater for her than actually skating than actually doing it. See, we can read the Bible all we want, and we can listen to all the sermons all we want, we can listen to all the worship music, and we can do all the things that we're doing virtually right now, but if we don't go out and do them, there's no substitute for that. That's training by constant practice. And so where are you in your spiritual maturity? Is it still in its infancy where all you can do is acknowledge that you are forgiven and acknowledge that you know God, but you haven't gotten to this place yet where you're training with constant practice? And if you're a child in that infancy stage of like, I know God and I know I'm forgiven and you complain about it, I understand that because that's what children do. They don't understand these other things yet. They haven't matured yet. But if you are an adult, if you are spiritually mature, you don't act like a child and complain. You go on doing what you're supposed to do, as mature people do. You train 
with constant practice, by constant practice. You don't ask someone why they're not doing something for you or why aren't you doing something for others. You do it. You go and do it. And during this shelter-in-place period, people have been doing a lot. I'm actually very proud of our church and um, our elders have been doing quite a bit, stepping up and doing elder check-ins on Mondays, checking in with people constantly throughout the week, facilitating prayer on Tuesday nights, facilitating worship on Thursday. Our home group leaders, you guys are amazing. Those of you who have continued to meet virtually, our children's and youth staff have continued ministry virtually. Um, the, that youth group meets on Wednesday nights together and has their Bible study. Our homeless outreach continues to service the homeless community with meals as all these other places are shutting down their food services. Our Sunday services continue and we have a team that produces and edits and, 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 and works on the sound and, and leads worship and does all these things. Prayer continues, benevolence continues going forward to, to people who need it, all the calls, the emails, the texts. But things are going to be missed. And if you're one of those people who feels, you know, the church has missed me, first of all, I do want to apologize for that. It is not our intention. It's, we've, we've been trying, and we did not mean to miss anyone. And we're trying to fill in any of those, those gaps that we may have missed. At the same time, I also need to ask where you are in your spiritual maturity. Because if you're a spiritually mature person, if you're an adult that John is addressing here, I need to encourage you to go train by constant practice. No pity party. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's minister to people. Let's love people. Let's serve people. You need to be in constant practice. Otherwise, you won't get any better at it. And so the spiritually mature constantly practices, they train. It's the baby, the spiritually immature, that can all, all they can do is acknowledge that there's God, a heavenly Father, and they know that, and they, they know that they're forgiven, but that's it. So where are you? And then John addresses young men. And so these are the, the people in the middle of child and adult, Verses 13 and 14, the, the second part of both of those verses, it reads, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Firstly, because you have overcome the evil one. The spiritual children experience forgiveness. They know their heavenly Father but just like all of us, we all know right after that comes the struggle. Comes just like you thought, isn't stuff supposed to get easier after I accept Christ in my life? No. This is the part of that spiritual life of overcoming the evil one. 
See, we've realized there's forgiveness, but, but as we mature, we also realize there's this constant struggle, there's this constant battle. Yes, we're saved from our sin in Jesus' name, but it doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing the rest of the way, that we face all these storms coming at us, and the direction we're heading toward Christ is so worth it, but it has so many challenges. So how do we overcome the evil one? It's in verse 14. John writes, you are strong and you have overcome the evil one in verse 14. But that secret sauce between the buns is this phrase right there in between. The word of God abides in you. What keeps us strong? What what keeps our eyes on that destination of heading towards Christ even when things try to pull us away from him? It's the word of God abides in you. And so we pour over the scriptures. We submit to what the word teaches. We remain loyal to its commandments. And the word of God guides us in the middle of all of these opposing views that attempt us to pull us away. We seek the truth of God to overcome the evil one and those who represent the evil one. Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What stage of spiritual maturity are you in? John fills us in on how we start through how we are are, are going to mature. The word of God is, is that secret sauce it's that sustenance it's what keeps us spiritually fed and and alive it needs to abide in us not simply just reading the word but but living by it it's it's the it's life's manual for our entire being it's it's our instruction manual for life where where our life depends on it so we live by what's written in it not casually but but digging into it as if our life depends on it digging in it for the cure there are so many people in the world looking for a vaccine for COVID-19 right now there's some similarities in how we are to look through the Bible like those scientists looking through a vaccine in their books in their research And this is key to overcoming and to becoming spiritually mature, where we train with constant practice. There's there's no secret behind spiritual maturity. It's like anything else. How do you get good at anything? Well, it does start with faith. You kind of have to have some faith to kind of step out and do something. Then you learn about it, and then you overcome the obstacles that prevent you from becoming good at it. And then you train with constant practice just to get better. It's so unfortunate that all of those world-class athletes who train their entire lifetimes for the Summer Olympics won't get that opportunity to achieve their goals this summer. And this is the same formula on how they got there. They trained with constant practice. It wasn't occasional. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't a hobby. And then in verses 15 through 17, John issues a warning. Verse 15. Do not love the world or things in the world. 
And now you notice that it's not addressed to any particular spiritual maturity group. This warning is addressed to all, no matter what stage of spiritual maturity you're in. And you're familiar with that phrase, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. This is a warning to everyone of the faith and maybe those who think that they're most spiritually mature need to actually pay closer attention to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We all know the temptations. They never stop, right? No matter where you are in your spiritual maturity, they never stop. Child, young person, adult, they never stop. And we know just from your own life, from history, we know how pride comes before the fall. And John lays out all the different groups of spiritual maturity, and then he lays out the strategy for everyone to live in victory, no matter what stage you find yourself in, that it's the same for everyone. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, now what is world? John isn't speaking of the physical world. He's speaking of the system of the world. He's speaking of the the human created system against God, how human society organizes itself against God. So no matter what spiritual stage you find yourself in right now, don't love that world. John isn't telling people to hate the physical world, what we're standing on, what, what we're living in. He is telling us not to love the world's system that encourages sin. We control who and what we love. We can choose to love God, His Word, His will, or we can choose to love the world. Verse 15, continuing on there. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Two reasons not to love the world. The first one, if you love the world, you can't love God can't love the Father and the world. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The second reason is that the world is, is temporary. It, it all goes away. It all perishes. It's, it's a pointless desire to have when something goes away. The world as it is, as we know it, isn't the way that God made it. It's the way how sinful people have ruined it. And that's verse 16. And this is what the world doesn't understand about itself. Is that it's all about the desires of the flesh. It is extremely selfish. It's more about indulgences of our senses that are based on these debased values. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, focus more on the temporary, which always breaks down, rather than what's of eternal value. Looking more towards external than intrinsic value. 
external beauty over internal value. There are many occasions, many occurrences of this happening in the Bible. A very, very well-known one is King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me just read verses 1 through 4 there. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. You see from that story, true story, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life all at work. That David was king. He was an adult, a spiritually mature adult who had followed God for many years. And yet this is many people today. No matter what stage, whether child, young person, or adult. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those temporary desires are so appealing and exciting and intoxicating, but they can ruin your life forever. And doing the will of God, it can seem repressive temporarily, but it benefits us forever. Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We do need, we're living in this world. And we, ha we must live here and do the will of God here, but but we don't get consumed, we don't become consumed with what the world has to offer us because we know that that is fleeting, that this world will disappear, that all of us die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Our lives after death are a lot longer than the short lives that we're living here right now. So which one are you living for? The short temporary life here or living the life now for what is to be everlasting? And we look at someone who chose very wisely. Look at the life of Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so you see from the life of a child to a young adult to a young person, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Progressing to an adult and seeing those stages there. And also choosing the life everlasting versus the temporary life that is here. And so which life will you choose? One that follows the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
And many people will choose that life. Many people will choose that temporary fleeting life and then live in eternal anguish. Or you choose a life that honors the will of God today and forevermore. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What stage of spiritual maturity do you find yourself in today? And you continue to grow and to listen carefully to John's warnings about the world. You focus on the eternal, not the temporary. You do the will of God. You train with constant practice in obedience, in love, in belief. This is the Christian life is, is not a mystery at all. It is just simply persistent obedience in the same direction towards Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the key, whatever life stage you find yourself in today. Let's encourage one another as we face this pandemic. Which, let me remind us, that this isn't the first one that the church has faced. The church has faced many. And may we face it as Martin Luther did with the bubonic plague. He knew who he was as a child of God. And he knew what he needed to do to overcome the evil one. May John's words permeate our spirit so that we can live well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, during this time that is chaotic in some ways and mysterious in that we don't necessarily know what's ahead, is no surprise to you. Lord, may we submit our lives completely to you. May this time be used to draw closer to you. I pray, God, that the friends who are listening to this message can progress from infancy to young person to adult and that we would walk in that spiritual maturity looking for your will and training with constant practice. Lord, please equip your church to do an amazing work at this time. That as we have to meet virtually and fellowship virtually and do these church services virtually, it does not constrain you at all. You are working through your people, in your people, all the time. And may this be a time where your gospel is sent forth in a bold way. May many people get to know who you are, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are starting uh, to have communion virtually every week. And um, it's actually nothing new because people all around the world are having communion that we don't know about. And, um, and yet we're all celebrating the same thing. We're all celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for us in his broken body and his spilled blood.
So as you grab those elements of communion so that we can partake together, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. We celebrated Easter last week, knowing that Christ took our sins. And so hopefully there are many of you who at least are in that stage or are moving past that stage of knowing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and you are forgiven. And that we know our Heavenly Father. Let's take our bread and partake of that together. Let's take our juice. take that together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did. Stepping down from your throne in heaven to be with us. To take upon the sin of the world upon yourself. Paying the price that was ours to pay even though we can't pay it. And you took it all and we get the benefit. We get the credit of what you've done. We're so grateful for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name.